Father, we do come before you this morning, not of our own merit, our own good, our own righteousness, our own skills, our own perfection. But God, we come here acknowledging that it is you who has brought us together this morning. It is only by your grace that people that are naturally self-serving would come to be with other people who are naturally self-serving to worship you. So I thank you, Lord, for stirring that in us this morning. I thank you for the work of your spirit in us to exalt Jesus Christ. And I pray that he would be exalted in what is said this morning, and specifically in his word, that, that we would be people that are affected by the beauty of our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Again, we're in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. I have a question for you, first of all. How do you wait? How do you wait? Did you have to wait any this week? Some of you might be thinking, kind of like I am sometimes, well, I wait throughout the week for the Bears game. That's an exercise in punishment. And sometimes I have to correct myself. Wait, you're waiting for the Bears game? That comes right after church. You should be waiting with more expectation for church, right? What else have you waited for? Have you been in a waiting room this week? Did you have to wait on the phone for an operator to answer? Were you just in some other situation where you were waiting with other people and then you looked around and everyone is on their phone? That's the way that we wait these days, right? Sometimes you might not even realize that you're waiting. There's just like a pause in life and whoop, there it is. How do you wait? The Puritans had a concept for what's called wakefulness. And they talked about waiting for Christ's return with a wakefulness, being awake to the reality that he would come. So maybe the next time you're waiting and you can see the sky, maybe the next time you're waiting, put away your phone and look up at the sky and see if you'll see Christ return. Do we think on Christ's return in those sorts of tangible ways, anticipating that today may be the day? Well, let me tell you, after doing a funeral this week, um, it's a very clear, sharp reminder that death is real, that eternity is real, that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead, after which the resurrection of the body will lead some to eternal judgment and some to eternal life. John is getting into some of these thoughts here as we move into 1 John 2, because he's going to mention right at the beginning that it is the last hour. Well, didn't John write this 2,000 years ago? Yes, he did. Maso menos. About 2,000 years ago, he was saying it is the last hour. That's because biblically, the last hour is from Christ's life through Christ's return. We are as much in the last hour as John and the churches he was writing to were. Let me read the passage to you, and I'm going to extend it a little bit into what Jake is going to preach next week, just so that you can see that there is an anticipation of Christ's return 
that is in this passage. Verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So in this last section of chapter 2, John and the churches are actively waiting. John is waiting and he's speaking to the churches, encouraging them to wait. And the simple question would be, how do you wait well? How do we wait well for Christ's return? One word answer, abide. How do we wait well? We abide. You may say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. That's been a lot of biding. You're right, it has been. To paraphrase Calvin, he said, when John wrote this, he was not saying it was going to happen right then. He did not want to hamstring the church and its growth by somehow fixing a date to when Jesus would come back. However, he did want to set their eyes on his return so that they would wait well. Furthermore, Calvin said, in the big picture of things, in the light of eternity, these last 2,000 years, it wasn't quite 2,000 years for Calvin, these last 2,000 years are but a moment in the bucket of eternity. So let's see what John is telling the churches here. These churches have gone through it because some of those who were part of them have left them. We've been calling them the secessionists. Think of the Confederate States of America seceding from the Union. This is what, in a way, has happened with these churches. People have left. People have left. So John addresses the surprise of these people leaving their secession that these churches have experienced. Some from their churches, some, some have left from their churches and, sorry, got tripped up there. 
They left their churches, but it's not like they left quietly. They left rebelliously. They left heretically. As it talked about in chapter 1, they, they still claim to have fellowship with God the Father. They still claim that they have no sin in them. And they claim that what they do do is not actually sin. John has already refuted their claims in chapter 1, concluding that such claims by these secessionists actually make God a liar. For them to believe these things, they are calling God the liar. However, these churches have lost people, people that they know, people that they loved. They were friends, even family perhaps. As these churches were, taking, were getting footholds in these Asian cities, these were doubtless people who co-labored with them, even suffered persecution and alienation from the surrounding community. They seemed to be lovers of God. And now they have gone and have gone raising a stink of heresy. These churches are shaken. To which the churches may have asked this question of John. Why did they leave? Why did they leave? And John, seeking to give them assurance in these last days, in this last hour, says this is why they left. And he gives three reasons. Number one, verse 18, it is the last hour. Antichrist is coming and antichrists have come. What does John mean by saying it is the last hour? Well, in Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 2, the author of Hebrews says, In the former days, God spoke to us through the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So again, John is saying, ever since Christ was here, it is the last hour. Furthermore, in 1 Peter 3, 3, Peter says, scoffers will come in these last days and these scoffers will come with scoffing they will consider the truth and <coughs> scoff at it they will follow their own sinful desires so john is saying listen what you've experienced should not surprise you because it is the last hour uh, furthermore, Antichrist is coming. Who is the Antichrist? An individual, an individual liar, as we see in verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. He says this in verse 18. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. When Jake read from 2 Thessalonians 2, you also heard what Paul said. When I was with you, I told you that he was going to come. John's readers had obviously also heard the same, that there would be one guy coming, the capital L liar. The Antichrist was going to come. These people had an established understanding of one that was still to come. 
rooted back in Daniel chapter 7 through 12. Verse 22 says that this liar denies that Jesus is the Christ. He denies also the Father and the Son. We get some more insight from chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Because there it says, By this you know that the Spirit of the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming again, and now is in the world already. That gives a little bit more clarity on what these people, these secessionists, were saying. They were saying that Jesus is not God in the flesh. Further on in 2 Thessalonians 2, according to Jake earlier, this lawlessness of this lawless man, though he had not yet arrived, that spirit of lawlessness was already at work in the world, and that lawless one would be revealed. Specifically, Paul says it's an activity of Satan. So active and so powerful will it be that this Antichrist will be able to perform signs, false signs, wonders with power that will deceive those who are perishing. So this is a guy that is still to come. Who will it be? I don't know. Will he be, according to John and to Paul and to Jesus, yes, he will be. And he will be the Antichrist. But I want you to catch something here. John's focus is not actually on that guy, on the Antichrist. His focus is on so now many Antichrists have come. These Antichrists, this spirit of the Antichrist, as it says in chapter 4, is in the world already. And it has the same characteristic as the capital A Antichrist to reject Jesus. To consider him and to say Jesus is false. Do we see this in the world already? Of course we do. I think John would say to these churches, and I will say to you this morning, believer, don't be surprised at false teachers or even powerful signs. Why? Because they are actually a time stamp given by God on the film reel of history that it is the last hour. Look, end of verse 18, therefore we know that it is the last hour. Hour. Don't be surprised. Don't fear. Don't be shocked when you see, if, if we see, powerful signs that cause people that are not actually of Christ to be deluded. This is the timestamp on the film reel of history that God says it is the final hour. It's proof of it. Take heart. The last hour means Jesus is coming soon. 
And what did Paul say in 2 Thessalonians? Jesus is going to show up and he's going to kill the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing simply by the appearance of his coming. So believer, take heart. Why do the secessionists leave? Number one, because it is the last hour. This is what happens in the last hour. People leave. Second reason is in verse 19a. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Another reason why they left, they were not of us, because if they were of us, they would still be with us. That sounds kind of like Ridley from John. What he's saying is this. If they were part of the actual fellowship in Christ, they would not have left. See, John defines the children as those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Later on in chapter 5, the core identity of the children that John is reading to is they believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Yet these people who have left the church, they have left because they do not believe that Jesus is the Christ. So these people, as harsh as it may sound, are literally antichrists. They have rejected Christ. In chapter 3 of John, Jesus says, those who believe in the Son are not condemned. Those who do not believe in the Son are condemned already. Christ ones versus antichrist ones. Jesus makes it very clear. John makes it very clear here. They have, they have left the fellowship of Christ Therefore, they are of the fellowship of the Antichrist. They are not with us because they are, they are not still with us. They did not abide. I'm going to use that word various times throughout the rest of the sermon and throughout the rest of the series because it comes up in 1 John a lot. When you hear the word abide, we don't use that very often, right? Conversationally. Abide, you can also substitute the word remain or just simply stay. I might use all three of those words interchangeably, abide, remain, or stay. They're all pointing to the same reality. These people had not abided, remained, or stayed, proving that they were not of Christ. Which brings us to the third reason why they left, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Look at that in the second half of chapter of verse 19. They went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Might become plain. Hmm. Secessionists seem to be false teachers. They were dispensers of so-called knowledge that did not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. And so these secessionists left. But were they only teachers? Were they only the guys that just kind of had some wild ideas about Jesus, so they left because they didn't have a platform to teach from anymore? 
No, it seems that they took people with them also. That it might become plain that they all are not of us. There was a group of people that left. Some may have been teachers. Some were more followers of those false teachers. But that it might become plain that it might become plain who would be behind such revelation such clarity God himself this is all according to his plan to make clear who is and who is not in Christ Though they weren't seeing it this way, John is saying, listen, churches, this is a gift to you from the Father's hand so that you may actually know who has truly been reborn into Christ and who has not. Imagine if these people had kind of just faded into the background of the church for years or for decades. They would have continued to have their side conversations about, well, this is who I really think Jesus is. This is what I really think about sin. I don't actually think that we're born in sin. I don't actually think that doing that is sin. Can you imagine the corruption that would be bred in a church if these people just stuck around and just continued having those side conversations? The fact that God would be so good to the church that this secession would make it plain that they are all not of us should be understood as a gift. He was purifying his bride through the secession. To which the church may say, okay, That's helpful to understand why they left. It is the last hour. They were actually never of us, even though they were with us. And God allowed this so that we could plainly see who was born again and who was not. But John, why have we stayed? Why have we stayed? And John has a simple answer to that. This is why you stayed. Verse 20. You have been anointed by the Holy One. You have been anointed by the Holy One. In the Old Testament, anointing was done with oil. You might think of the prophet Samuel taking the shepherd David out into the field and anointing him. He was anointed as king, though he was not yet king, he would be. It was an outward sign, the oil coming down over David, an outward sign of the, in, the inward transforming of David and also the further call that would co- become realized as he became king. That's the picture of anointing in the Old Testament. But here, John is saying, you have been anointed by the Holy One. The people of the church that have stayed, they have been 
anointed inwardly by the Holy Spirit, and so they stay. Their abiding or remaining or staying with the church is the outward sign of their inward anointing. You see how that has kind of flipped Old Testament to new? Old Testament, there was an outward sign of what was done inwardly. That was the anointing. Now the anointing has happened inwardly, and there's an outward sign of it. What is it? You abide. These people have been changed by the Spirit, John says, so they stay. They stay and show, so it shows that they have been changed by the Spirit. It's a both and, both sides of the coin, together. They've been changed by the Spirit, so they stay. They stay because they've been changed by the Spirit. See, hear this. The surest sign that one is actually a Christian is that you find community with Christians. That is the surest sign. It's not your Bible reading plan. It's not your prayer dedication. It's not the date that you look back to when you were in your early teens when you walked up to the front of a stage and you bowed down at church camp and said, that was the day that I was born again. It may have been. But it also may not have been. The surest sign that one is a Christian has been born again is that that person remains with Christians, others who have been born again. But this anointing is from the Holy One, anointed by the Holy One. Who is the Holy One? Well, back in John chapter 6, verse 69, this is after Jesus has talked to the crowds who were at that point labeled disciples. And he talks about them eating his body and drinking his blood. And the wider audience take this as some sort of mysterious cannibalism. And they say this teaching is difficult. And they begin to walk away. They begin to secede. And as they walk away, Jesus looks at the 12. And he says, are you going to go too? To which Peter responds, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One. Here it's saying, you have been anointed by the Holy One. Christian, consider the intimate, eternal reality that if you have been born again by the Spirit, a.k.a. anointed, renewed, reborn, regenerated, taken from being dead in your sin to being alive in Christ. It was Jesus' personal application of his saving power and love to you. 
We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One. You have been anointed by the Holy One. What Jesus begins, Jesus finishes. Later on in John chapter 20, this is after Jesus' resurrection, he's meeting with the disciples, and he does sort of a peculiar thing. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This would be a peculiar thing, except that is happening in the same Gospel of John, where earlier in John 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born of the flesh and of the Spirit. This reality that we need the Spirit to intervene. And Jesus intervenes to the disciples. It's not clear in the text, I'll admit, but I do wonder. I do wonder if that was the time when the disciples were born again. Up to that point, they had been followers, yes. But was it there, having seen the crucified and resurrected king before them, that they received new life from the breath of the Spirit of Christ? We don't know the answer to that, but we do know the answer to this. He's done that to us. What follows from that? This amazing work of Christ through his spirit. You all have knowledge. The end of verse 20. You all have knowledge. Why would John tack that on? Because he's saying, listen, you know who you need to know. These secessionists are going all over the place, espousing these crazy theories, denying Jesus in the flesh, denying original sin, denying that what they do is actually sin, and saying, yeah, we're still good with God. And John says, ignore them. Ignore them. They're heretics. You all have knowledge. It makes me think, you know, we, we talked about last week about these different categories of people up top. We talked about the little children. This is a few verses earlier in chapter 2. The little children in both verses 12 and 13 being all the people. Then it talks about the fathers. And then John speaks to the young men. It makes you wonder, in the context of those local churches, what the battle over the truth of Christ really looked like. I mean, the churches were young. The churches did not have the New Testament, by and large. No wonder John was telling the fathers, stick with Jesus. The rest of the church needs you. No wonder he was saying to the young men, you are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. These guys needed the encouragement to step up to the plate and defend sound doctrine to step up to the plate and say Jesus is the Christ and he is Lord and so they had and John encourages them in this you know the truth it continues on verse 22 
Who is the liar? But he denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Those heretical dudes, those secessionists, they may claim the Father, they don't have him. You can only access the Father through the Son, and they've disavowed the Son. Whoever, however, confesses the Son has the Father also. Churches, believers, you know the truth. You all have knowledge. You have confessed the Son, so you truly have the Father also. You have no need for extra knowledge. So whether you're a father or a mother, a young man, a young woman, a little child, or somewhere in between, May our gaze continue to be fixed on Christ and Christ alone. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let what you heard remain in you. Let it stay in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, if it stays in you, then you too will remain, stay, abide in the Son and in the Father. It's not enough just to say, hey, I'm good with God. No matter what my life looks like, no matter what I believe, I think God is gracious. He loves everybody, doesn't he? He loves everyone in terms of a creator, yes. But his definitive love is set upon those whom he has called upon the elect, those who he has called to himself and has anointed them with the Holy Spirit. So John is saying here, it does matter what you believe. It does matter what you allow to abide in you. What did they hear from the beginning? I toyed with like going through and stating all the I am statements in John. Because who knows? These guys could have heard, I am the light of the world. They could have heard, I am the gate, or I am the good shepherd. Maybe John is just pointing to John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Allow that to remain in you. Verse 25, he utters this incredible promise. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. That is an amazing but logical promise. Because if someone has been saved into Christ, and has fellowship with the Father and with the Son, when they pass from this life to the next, does it not logically follow that the one who is eternal life himself will deliver them from this life into the next, where their abiding will be beyond any sort of abiding we've ever experienced here? That is the promise. 
It's not a promise we have to work ourselves up for. It's not a promise we have to convince ourselves of. It's a promise we just simply need to believe. Christ is enough to give me fellowship with the Father that I can remain in and I will be with him for eternity one day. To which he concludes, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Two therefores at the end here. One, be careful of those who are trying to deceive you. Do you believe that the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in our world today? You know what? More specifically, do you believe the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in the quote-unquote American church? I have some stats that would say he is. In a study done by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway, here are the top five heresies among American evangelicals. Number one, Jesus isn't the only way to God. More than half of American evangelicals, 56%, affirmed that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And that's up from 42% just two years ago. 56%. Yet Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Second, Jesus was created by God. 73% of American evangelicals agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Yet John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Number three, Jesus is not God, another heresy. 43% affirmed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. But John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Number four, the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. 60% of American evangelicals believe that. Yet John 16.7-8, Jesus said, If I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And number five, humans aren't sinful by nature. 57% also agreed to the statement that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Yet just early in 1 John 1.8, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Brothers and sisters, the last hour calls for discernment among the saints. Be awake. Be awake. Who is it that you're listening to? Who is it that you're reading? Who is it that you're talking to? What is it that you're believing? It seems to me that the American church has already largely drunk the Kool-Aid of the Antichrist secessionists, and it's showing how could a church be vibrant and strong and influential, survive perhaps persecution, if it does not actually believe Christ is who he said he is? 
Why should we be surprised when people fall away from the fake Christ that they've eh, kind of liked? That they, ah, eh, I accepted him when I was six. You accepted him? Bro, by, your, by his grace and mercy, maybe he accepted you. I have a feeling that in our society, we've been more worried about who the Antichrist is than about the Antichrist that may be among us in the wider American church. Brothers and sisters, this is why we take membership and eldership seriously here at Edgewater. Graciously, seriously, I would hope, but seriously nonetheless. When we talk about membership, we're talking about affirming someone's faith that we see in them that they have been born again. And corporately, we say, yes, we see the fruit of the Spirit in them. And when we can no longer affirm that, that means that discipline needs to come. Discipline that allows someone who may be believing wrongly to leave. Eldership is about preserving sound doctrine. So as you're filling out elder nominations, consider, have I heard this man preach or teach before? Do I know that he believes rightly? That he takes Christ and his words? That his life shows that he treasures him? We must be clear-eyed on the real possibility of false doctrine, not just widely, but within us, too. Wolves are real, and wolves come in in sheep's clothing. But that's not how John finishes here. He gives them this warning, but then he also encourages them. Verse 27, the anointing that you received from him abides in you. That anointing is the Holy Spirit. Did you just hear what he said? The Holy Spirit abides in you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of the Christian. The Holy Spirit lives inside of the Christian. The Holy Spirit lives inside of the church. Don't discount his faithful presence. The anointing you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. This is going back to what Jarmaine read, read earlier from Jeremiah chapter 31, where God, through Jeremiah, talks about the new covenant, where God himself would write his law upon their hearts so that no one would need to teach one another, saying, no, God. And God says the reason you don't have to teach one another, no, God, is that they're all going to know God. Well, he's talking about the remnant, the specific people of Christ that he has anointed. It does not mean here, John is not saying, so stop going to church, stop listening to the sermon. Stop reading good books that inflame your love for Jesus. What he's saying here is that you don't need these dudes, these secessionists, to somehow tell you, hey, I've got the secret sauce. Trust Christ. Continue to dive more deeply into Christ, his sufficiency, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. And live life in light of those facts. 
But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him, remain in him, stay in him. This is a call to the saints. We've got a target on us for deception. We've got inward deception that tries to trick us, the flesh. And we've got an enemy that is also trying to deceive us, Satan. But John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Abide in him. Remain in him. Stay in him. That is the assurance in the last hour. Jesus Christ, the one who has anointed us, will keep us abiding in him until the day of his return. This is the perseverance of the saints. And then we will abide with him into eternity. This is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. Let's pray.